1: murder, possession, or even the devil himself, the truth at the Amadeville Horror House remains a mystery to this day. Did a demon tell Ronnie DeFeo Jr. to kill his whole family? Or had he become possessed by an angry Indian chief? Did the Lots family experience supernatural activity in the brief 28 days that they were in the house? And why did they keep all the furniture from the DeFeo family, even the beds the family were murdered in? What did the Warrens find during their séance at the house when they were called in to
2: investigate? My name is Anne Rekovich, and I'm Renata Daniel, and this
0: is the True Hauntings podcast. Anne and Renata have been investigating paranormal occurrences for the past twenty years. They have been at the center of various unexplained phenomena and have witnessed countless ghostly experiences. The duo now turn to high-profile cases that have attracted the eyes of the world. Between the dimensions we see and the dimensions we don't, supernatural forces are at play. Evil lurks within the shadows of our homes and in the darkest corners of our minds. It follows us like a shadow, forever. This is where nightmares become reality. This is True Hauntings.
2: So welcome listeners and parastalkers to our very first episode of the True Hauntings podcast. Welcome to you all. This is a podcast that looks at
1: real life hauntings, the facts about the case, the hype, possible alternative solutions and where are they all now? I'm Anne, a paranormal investigator and I own and run
2: OzParatech, Australia's largest online paranormal equipment store. And I'm Renata Daniel, also a paranormal investigator, psychic medium and author, and I own and operate the multi-award winning Newcastle Ghost Tours. And we are busy, busy people, aren't we, Anne? <laughs> What are we doing? What are we doing right now? Well, we've been run off our feet a little bit since the Kyle
1: and Jackie O show because uh, we just got inundated with requests for people asking for help. And asking for us to come and have a cup of tea with them. Yeah. Mm. And when we asked for more information, we were getting stories like, oh, no, there's no haunting. We just want you to do a walkthrough to see if it's haunted.
2: Yeah. Or
1: the other one was, my cat's looking at something. I want to know what it is. I (laughs) loved that one. That one just put a smile on my face.
2: Yeah. We'd love to come to every single person who contacts us. We just can't because we still have our businesses to operate. So Halloween means tours. Tours and more tours. It's
1: like the bridal season for I know. ghost hunters, right? I know,
2: right? <laughs> I know. Uh, and it's it's going to be great. So I'm really looking forward to these next um, two weeks, ten days that we have coming up. Yeah, yeah. For these
1: if- guys, they are going to be listening right now
2: on Halloween. I know, and we are going to be up to our armpits in hauntings. Yes. <laughs> but let's get on to this story. We have a story to tell. So we've been digging deep into the Amityville horror hauntings and it's obsessed me, It became an obsession while I was looking yeah. at this stuff. The deeper I dug, the
1: more I would find and the more discombobulated I became. And yeah. So tell me the story. Just an hour out of New York City in the picturesque Long Island town of Amityville, a beautiful Dutch colonial waterfront home goes up on the market for a bargain basement price, just $80,000. A newly married couple with their three children are looking for their forever home. They spot the ad in a fantastic neighbourhood and make an appointment to see the home. They couldn't believe their luck. Five bedrooms, three and a half bathrooms, and plenty of room for the kids to play. Even a boathouse. This had to be their lucky day. Or was it? They were looking at the infamous house on Ocean Avenue, Amateurville, that had endured the murders of six people just a year before. A whole family murdered by Ronnie DeFeo Jr. His mother and father and four siblings in very mysterious circumstances the real estate agent paid due diligence to let them know of the grisly murders of the DeFeo family and even offered to throw in all the furniture still in the house for a mere $400 the Lutz family convened a family meeting and decided that the house would be perfect regardless of its history It was too good a deal. The family took spiritual precautions to bless their home before they moved in, and Father Ray came and blessed their new home. But as he started his prayers, a dark, malevolent male voice said,
0: Get out!
1: The priest fled the home, warning the family to stay out of the second-floor sunroom. Shortly after, he became direly ill. He had been affected by the house. Was he being sent a firm message to get out and stay out? Then, the family moved in the very next day. That's when the true terror began for the family. The youngest daughter, befriended by imaginary friend Jodie the Pig, a diabolical, demonic creature with glowing red eyes. George the father started to change personality and became dark and brooding and aggressive. The mother was touched in places she shouldn't be by unseen forces and had violent dreams of the murders that took place in the house the house started to take on a personality all of its own. Plagues of flies would infest the rooms. Cloven hoof prints were found outside their windows in the snow. Their dog (coughs) cowering in fear at a secret hidden red room. Was it painted in blood? Had they inadvertently released a demon that resided in that walled up secret room in the basement? Had witchcraft been practised on the land? Or maybe the house was on top of an ancient Native American Indian burial ground? The final straw was the walls oozing a gelatinous slime straight from the pits of hell. After only 28 days, the family fled this horror house they left everything they owned and ran for their very lives and were never the same again. I wonder where they are now and if the new residents have invisible friends too.
2: Now, Anne, before we get into this story, you've got a special connection to the Amityville Horror House. Yes, I do. A little little birdie told me a little piece of information about your son. Yes. Mm. Tell me more. All right. Well, um,
1: as many people know, there have been many movies spawned from the Amityville legend and my son actually appeared in one of them it was a pretty, um, I wouldn't even say B grade. I'd probably head further down the alphabet. Uh, but it was shot in LA. It's a legit movie. Uh, he played um, Donnie, I think his name was, in the. One of the bad ones. Yeah, one of the bad <laughs> ones. Uh, the Amateurville Hauntings, I think it was called. And uh, he was killed off in the first four minutes. Yes. So thank, I think it's just a Thank goodness well. for that.
2: <laughs> So that's that's quite interesting and and maybe that's kind of even made a bit of a deeper connection with regard to this particular story but um I want to start off by looking at the murders of the DeFeo family and whether Ron DeFeo was actually possessed by a demon or an Indian chief as they say and whether that was the reasoning behind why he may have murdered the whole family. Yeah, I don't
1: think think many people even know about the Indian chief aspect Mm, of it.
2: Yeah, like you said, the more you dig, the more you find Mm. out. So Ron claimed that he was hearing voices that told him to commit the murder And he even went on to tell the police that at one stage an old woman with black hands appeared and handed him the gun that he used to to shoot all six members of his family. Oh, interesting. I've Mm. got a little bit of information about that I'm going to hand over later. Oh, very interesting. Now, his story changed so many times during the trial that it literally can make your head spin. So who knows what the right thing was in the end. But there are a number of questions that come up immediately that are quite interesting and spooky. For example, okay, he shot six members of his family, Mm -hmm. yet no one heard any gunshots. No neighbours reported hearing any gunshots on the night. And why didn't any of the family members put up a fight? Why were they all found face down on their beds?
1: Now, I have an interesting little bit of a theory that I read somewhere about hauntings and that the fact that sound can be muffled or dispersed during a haunting. So um, I don't really apply to that so much, but mm. I just thought I'd throw that in there just because it was something that tweaked my memory there.
2: Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So let's let's go a little bit further and let's get some background to the stories about the land that the house sits on. Because as paranormal investigators, we need to go there. We, we do. need to really have a look uh, at every single detail and see where these stories layers, come up. Yes. layers and layers. So one of the legends is that an Indian tribe once resided on the land that eventually became the town of Amityville. Mm-hmm. So it's said that the land where the house on 112 Ocean Drive was built was originally used as a sick bay where ill and insane members of that tribe were left to die at the mercy of the elements. That really doesn't sound right, does it? Mm. Yeah. So in accordance with this belief, the haunting was a result of restless Indian spirits roaming the land. So another legend points to a man named John Ketchum who escaped from Salem during the witch trials Mm -hmm. and built his house on the land where the Amityville house now stands. This tale would say that Ketchum used the home to continue his practice for devil worship.
1: Oh, of course. He's from Salem. So of let's course. let's bring in the
2: witches and the devils. Mm-hmm. And, of course, performing rites and sacrifices of pigs and dogs. On oh,
1: babies. I'm sure there was babies.
2: Of course. <laughs> so according to this story, Ketchum opened a doorway to hell, which was never closed, and that led to the demons crossing over into our world and staying here. Mm, there's a the D word. Yep. You know it has to come up eventually. <laughs> yes. So there are many legends um, ranging from stories that the house was built over an abandoned cemetery, bingo, and also a curse was placed unjustly on a settler who was hung there in the early history of the settlement in Amityville.
1: Isn't the uh, being built on top of a cemetery a different movie? Oh, that's poltergeist, I'm sure. They all
2: come together. They all come together in the end. Maybe they use the same script. Who knows? (laughs) So the reality is Ronald Sr. worked at his father-in-law's Brooklyn Buick dealership and provided the family with a comfortable upper middle class lifestyle. So just normal house, normal family in Mm -hmm. a normal street in a normal town. He also served as a domineering authority figure and engaged in hot-tempered fights with his wife and children. So we know that much. Mm -hmm. The most frequent target, though, of the abuse was the eldest son, Ron Jr., who they called Butch. Oh, Butch. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Didn't know that. And Ron Sr. really expected a lot from his son. He wanted to follow in his footsteps.
1: I suppose take over the family business. Absolutely. Absolutely but
2: Ron wasn't into that. He got worse and worse at school. He became overweight. He became brooding and he became the victim of relentless tauntings by his classmates. So not only did he get a bad time at home, but he also got a bad time at school.
1: Oh, Bullying. Mm -hmm. Don't do it, people. Don't do it.
2: So as Butch matured, he began lashing out physically against his father as well as a few of his friends. His concerned family took him to a psychiatrist, but the visits didn't sit well with DeFeo, who denied he needed help. Of course, there's nothing wrong with me. No, at least the family were trying to do the right thing. Mm. The trips to the doctor eventually stopped and in their place what the DeFeos did was they threw cash and presents at him. <gasps> no. Including a $14,000 speedboat. So they were just trying to bribe him for good behaviour. Yep. Oh. So the new tactic only made problems worse and by the age of 17, DeFeo had spent all this money they were giving him on LSD and heroin oh, no. and was expelled from school because of his violent outbursts. Wow. So in spite of all of this, the de continued to reward their son. Mm. So they're now rewarding bad behaviour. Okay. And at the age of 18, he received a prized position at his grandfather's car dealership with little to no expectations. So they just wanted to really keep an eye on him. They gave him weekly money, whether he attended work or not, And DeFeo funneled this into his new car, another present from his parents, but also guns, alcohol and drugs. Wow. Things were going wrong for a really long time. So his behaviour seemed to only increase and he threatened a friend with a rifle during a hunting trip. When asked about that, he acted as if nothing had happened. He also attempted to shoot his father with a 12-gauge shotgun during a fight between his parents. So he's he's
1: actually pointed a gun at his father yep. before the murders happened. Yeah, but listen.
2: Wouldn't that be a red flag? Listen to this. He actually pulled the trigger at point-blank <gasps> range, but the gun malfunctioned. So that's attempted murder. Mm-hmm. So his surprised father ended the argument and was stunned by that confrontation, and I dare say he backed off and backed away slowly after that. Well,
1: he was such a violent man himself. Mm. Um, Apparently some of uh, Ronnie Jr.'s friends had witnessed Ronnie Sr. taking to his
2: wife. Yeah, yeah. What a a terrible family situation to be raised in. Just violence. Mm. So in 1974, DeFeo feeling irritated by what he believed was his meagre salary, plotted methods for embezzling money from the car dealership. And I know I'm going into a lot of back detail, but I think it's really important to understand all of this and what may have been the cause for the original murder because we have two separate things going on. Not only do we have the original murder that was carrying on, going on, but then we also have the Lutz family coming in. Yeah. Yep. So let's look at, let's continue to look at this. So in October, the dealership entrusted him with the responsibility of depositing more than $20,000 to the bank and DeFeo planned a mock robbery with a friend.
1: Oh, this is DeFeo Jr. Yeah.
2: Agreeing to split the money evenly. So the plan went off without a hitch until police came to the dealership to question him. And instead of calmly answering the officer's questions, DeFeo exploded into rage. Oh, I feel he got triggered. (laughs) Mm. So when police, suspicious that DeFeo was lying, asked him to come to the station to check out mugshots of possible suspects, he refused to comply. And that's when Ronald Sr. began to suspect that his son had committed the robbery. When he questioned Ron... DeFeo threatened to kill his father. Ah, another threat. Yep. So this is the background to all of this. So, you know, if you want to put two and two together, here is the ultimate scenario of what may have led young Butch or Ron DeFeo Jr. to commit the crime in the first place.
1: Yeah, and some people could say that he was just a spoiled brat. Others may look at this and see some mental health issues that, Mm -hmm just were never addressed. they attempted to, mm-hmm. but never managed to follow through.
2: And if you think about it from some of the paranormal views that may, people may have, that this could have been a perfect storm for any demonic or dark entities to come in mm-hmm. and literally start to take him over. Influence. Mm-hmm. Now let's turn to the Lutzes. So the Lutzes were owners of a successful multi-generational family business themselves. Well, that's a little contrary
1: to some of the reports that were out there. They were saying that the family was struggling Mm. and uh, one of the reasons that they reported all this was to get out of buying the house. So that doesn't sound like it's the same story, does it?
2: No, it doesn't. They did put all their money into the house, but they were looking for a house that they could afford. Mm -hmm. So you know, they still had to count their pennies, but they weren't in deep financial trouble. They weren't known to be storytellers. They weren't known to be scam artists or oddballs. They were by all accounts, just a normal young couple trying to raise their kids. The kids they had weren't Georges. They were the mothers ah. from a previous marriage. So Kathy had all three yep. children. Yes. Right. Yep. And they were newlyweds, weren't they? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So when Kathy and George moved into the three-storey colonial home in Amityville, they were thrilled. So true, the house had been the scene of horrible multiple murders a little over a year before when the 23-year-old Ronnie DeFeo went from room to room, methodically shooting his parents, his four brothers and sisters in their beds. But the Lutzers had sat down with their three children and agreed that the family could handle it. I would have loved to have sat in on that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how do you tell your kids? Don't worry, kids. Well, how much would they tell them? Because if the
1: kids go to school, they're going to hear the stories because Amadeville, the town, it's they, tiny. They, let me tell you, they gossip. <laughs> yeah. Some of the stuff I've gotten, it's, they gossip.
2: Yeah. So just in case, they did ask the local priest, Father Ray Pecoraro, oh, well to come done. in and bless the house. Uh, and this is when... One of the first weird and spooky things happened because Father Ray went upstairs and he heard a voice say, get out. Oh, no, you've got to say it like I did. Get out. Well done. And he also felt himself being slapped by an unseen hand. And he got uh, flu-like symptoms and became quite ill and his hands started to bleed. Now I heard they
1: also said blistered. Now, mm-hmm. yep. This I just thought of this then. You know how they said um, the you felt like you were slapped on the face. Mm-hmm. There is a childhood childhood illness called slap face, and it's where your cheeks come up really red, and you feel like somebody has slapped you. But there's also the one the um, is it hand, foot, and mouth where they get blisters on mm-hmm. their hands yeah. and their feet. Yep. Is it possible that it could have been something like that? It was just the timing?
2: It could have been. They did say it was like stigmata. Of course. Of course. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So anyway, the family moves in and within a few days they start to notice strange phenomena. Do, 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 do. Yeah, so there were odours in the house that came and went. There were sounds. The front door would slam shut in the middle of the night. And George said he just couldn't get warm. They had the heaters on in the house all the time. So he also says that they found strange gelatinous drops on the carpet when they woke up in the mornings and and that his wife at one stage was physically transformed in front of his eyes into an old woman with a craggy old face and hair and wrinkles of a 90-year-old. Oh, I hope you didn't say that to her at the time. <laughs> Maybe she just had a hard night.
1: Honey, you're looking like a 90-year-old. Put some face cream on.
2: And then George woke up one night by the sounds of a band playing in his room. So he claims that he would mysteriously wake up at 3.15am almost every morning, and that's supposed to be around the same time that the DeFeo murders were believed to have happened. And this is the icing on the cake here. One night, he woke up to find that his wife was levitating above the bed.
1: Mm. Now, was mm. that in the movie or was that an actual report? Both.
2: Right. Okay. He, he did report that. Yeah. Mm. That, because that's when they moved out. They moved out the uh, the next day. They said that's that's it. That's the final straw. That's the, the final straw. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's not quite clear from when the Lutzes left the house to when they were approached by a book editor. So they were introduced to Jay Anson and he had been busy writing some behind-the-scenes and making of books about films and film personalities in the 1970s, and he decided to write a book on what had happened to the Lutzes. They submitted about 45 hours of tape-recorded recollections to him, and he used this as the basis for his book, The Amityville Horror. And I've got a story on that one for you too. Mm. Now, this was published in 1977. John G. Jones then met George and Kathy Lutz through mutual friends in California in the 80s, and the Lutzes asked John to tell the continuing story of what happened after they left the house, and John agreed. And his first book was the Amityville Horror 2. and that was published in 1983 by Warner Books. Now, I wonder why they decided to write the second book. Hmm. Was it because the movies came out and there was such a difference between what they had told the first publisher and what came out in the movies, or were they making money out of it? I don't know,
1: but I do know that they didn't make anywhere near as much money out of it as other people. So maybe- And this is just my personal opinion. This is not anything I've read. Maybe they needed to finance a little bit more and keep riding that wave of the Amityville.
2: Now, there are some things that uh, I found out with regards to that part of the story, and George and Kathy Lutz stayed by their story their entire lives. They didn't change anything, and they know or it is known that this is true. George and Kathy Lutz never changed their story, and until their deaths they maintained that what was written in the book was mostly true, mostly true. Because there is a bit of a story too about them sitting down and having a few bottles of wine. There
1: is, um, and that comes into my aspect of the whole thing is where I, I try to look at what might have happened behind. And their lawyer, William Weber, I believe his name was, mm-hmm. um, almost became their spokesperson because when all this went down they disappeared. Nobody could find them. They actually didn't want the publicity and apparently George had contacted William uh, in regards to had the previous owners had any paranormal activity. So that's how that connection was made and um, they got together over a couple of bottles of wine, discussed the case. And uh, made it juicier. Made it juicier, but they also hatched a plan to put the house into a trust and then monetize it by making it an attraction Mm -hmm. with a juicier story and charging people to enter the
2: house. Right. Okay. I want to hear more about that. Yep. The Lutzes didn't get rich from the books or the movies, so that kind of was really something that belonged to the writers of these stories and to the movie producers. Now, we do also know that the house was not built on any Indian burial ground. Uh, At least the Lutzes never claimed that it was, and there are many unauthorised books and films that speculated about these spots burial grounds, 17th century warlocks and Mm, other unapproved But it does make good Hollywood stories. Yeah. Uh, None of them were put forth by the Lutzes. They didn't say anything about this. So where the rest of that came from, um, even the local Native American Indian tribe was asked and they said, we got no idea where this is coming from because it's certainly isn't true.
1: Yeah, they they said that that was a load of cod's wallop.
2: Mm, that was nicely put, in. Thank you. I would have used a different word. Yeah. So you can imagine in a small town like Amityville when something like this hits the headlines, what it sparks, and everyone was coming out of the woodwork to try and have a piece of this story. So two months after the Lutzes moved out, a reporter by the name of Laura Dedeo. Now who, I have
1: to say I really like Laura and I like her reports. Mm-hmm. I've um, listened to a lot of her interviews and she seems very sensible.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay,
1: we're going to disagree, are we?
2: I don't know. I don't know too much about her or what, what? her. I've
1: got a little bit of information. What on her it.
2: thoughts were about this, but she gathered together a group of psychic researchers. And she went in to do some filming. Now, the researchers spent a night in the house walking from room to room and trying to pick up on all of the ghostly vibrations Mm -hmm. that were there. And she says it was like a a psychic slumber party.
1: (laughs) I love that description. But
2: guess who Laura invited as part of the research team? Oh, please tell me. Ed and Lorraine Warren. Surprise, surprise. Now, this is early in their whole career Mm -hmm. and this was probably one of the most well-known stories. And I've Uh, got a little bit of
1: juicy information there for you on that. Oh, I
2: can't wait. Do you know they weren't
1: the first people that were invited? Really? No, they weren't. Mm -hmm. Who else was? Hans Holzer. Oh, Now, that's a name to remember. Yeah. So he was unavailable. So they reached out to the
2: Warrens who, as you said at the time, were virtually unknown. Mm -hmm. So Lorraine and Ed, I think, were determined to make their mark here Mm -hmm. and they spoke a lot to everyone after this whole incident. And uh, Lorraine said things like she felt uh, an overwhelming feeling of horrible depression when she entered the house. Um, they split up and Ed went downstairs to face the demon and Lorraine went upstairs to the sewing room. Because demons are always in the basement. <laughs> always. <laughs> they are. Or the attic. <laughs> they are. Um, and, yes, um, they kind of did a bit of a report on what they felt was going on in the house. Strangely, though, when the other researchers were quizzed and questioned about that same evening, many of them had very little to say. And that's that's a little bit weird because you have... The Warrens who are saying that all of these weird and wonderful things were happening. And Ed went downstairs to the uh, the basement where the demon was, and he went up to the demon, the demon came out, he said, Show yourself, and he came out of the dark corner, and Ed held up a crucifix and said, I oh, be gone, demon, be gone. And the demon left. Wow. In this moment, Lorraine is upstairs in the sewing room and she walks into the room where all the bodies were before they were taken out into the morgue and she said she'd never felt such an oppressive and horrible, horrible energy as she felt in that room. It was like literally walking into hell. And so she was up there dealing with all of that. Um, We've got hell below and hell above at this stage, yeah. And I think all the rest of the researchers were actually busy setting up gear because they certainly had a camera that they put on the steps and one of the famous photos from the whole scenario is that of a little boy with glowing eyes and you mm-hmm. actually see him, you see the photograph and he's peeking what looks like outside of a doorway Yep. and he has these glowing eyes. He's, he's got a striped t-shirt got, on. He's got a striped t-shirt on and... Part of this story is who is this child? Is it one of the dead DeFeo children, or was it one of the researchers that was there on the night and they got him, um, not knowing that he was upstairs? Now, a little bit to add to that.
1: Uh-oh, oh, oh, <laughs> um, I listened to a an interview on Jason Hoare's podcast saying um, it was just. George speaking, and he was saying they showed that picture to the youngest daughter and said, do you know who that is? And she said, yeah, that's Jody, That's my friend that plays with me.
2: Oh, so here is another yeah. identity. It's yeah. Jody the pig. Yeah. But Jody the pig's turned up like a little boy? Yes, yeah, sometimes
1: apparently Jody the pig became a little boy. Uh-huh. And a cat, I think. As I a correctly.
2: shapeshifter. Yes. That's very interesting. Hmm. So let's have a look at a couple of the things that they said. Lutz contacted DeFeo's attorney William Weber, who was already fielding book proposals from publishers for his client's story, and they met and tried to have a bit of a meeting about how they could drive interest in a book in a book deal. And Weber remembers the Lutzes starting out in a very reserved tone. They weren't ranting or raving about anything, but this wasn't going to sell any books. So they made a conscious effort to relook really at the whole story and maybe embellish it a little bit. Yep. Just a tad. Yeah. So, one idea, according to Weber, was. These gelatinous drops that the Lutzes found on the carpet started to need a sinister explanation. So what if we start talking about green slime? And maybe You've watched
1: Nickelodeon, I'm yeah, sure. Maybe
2: that it comes from a demonic force? So the Lutzes admit that some of the scenes from the book and the movie, which they both read and saw, such as the green slime, were embellished. Um, But in the end, Weber says that he insists that the book and the movie are based on real life events and things that actually happened to the family during their 28th stay in the house. So Weber goes on to say that he denies making anything up, saying that if they had, or if he and they had, they would have to come up with a better story and probably that they wouldn't have fled the house, leaving their belongings behind. Um, he says that people are entitled to call the whole thing a hoax if they want to. I can't tell people what to think. I can just say what I experienced. Now, even in that, even in the story about them moving out of the house, uh, leaving all everything behind and I remember watching an interview with Ed and Lorraine Warren and they had a lot of photos that they had taken and one of the photos showed the dishes still in the sink Mm -hmm,
1: and the refrigerator full of food
2: yeah um what I heard from George Lutz himself was that he never thought that he wasn't going to return Mm. they just moved out to get a breather and yeah. to get away from people asking questions. So they were supposed to come back as far as he was concerned. Yeah, but in another interview that I just listened to,
1: uh, they were saying that they never went back to the house and that everything within it was sold off at auction, including the boat in the shed, which then had bad luck f- followed, of course, uh, and that the food in the fridge and the food in the cupboards were all
2: donated to charity. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not
1: kidding you. That oh, was oh out of God. Georgia. God.
2: Now, Weber, he's an interesting character, this guy. Yes, because, and we have to be careful what we say because it's liable. Yes. <laughs> I'm just going to say he's an interesting character. He's a lawyer. Mm. And he went on and he enlisted Hans Holzer. So Hans had a... Opportunity to go early on when everything was still in the house Mm -hmm. and he was busy so he couldn't so they got the other team to come in. But then he went back, Weber went back to Hans Holzer uh, and asked him to go in again. Now, when Hans went in this time, the house was empty. And it was two years later. Yeah, there was nothing at all in the house except empty, empty walls. So in 1977, Holzer visited the Ocean Avenue house with a medium who claimed to be able to talk to the dead. And according to Holzer's account, the medium went into a trance, and it's a light trance, and said that there was an Indian chief on the warpath in the house because he'd been built on the site of a sacred burial ground. So Holzer believes that this is why Ronnie DeFeo was possessed. So he was possessed by the angry spirit of the Indian chief and that the chief would not leave the house until it burnt down and would leave the land bare.
1: And apparently it was um, uh, years earlier somebody had dug up. Now, this is allegedly, there is no proof of this whatsoever. Somebody had dug up a skull and children were kicking it around like a soccer ball. And this is why the Indian chief was angry. Yes, because this was his skull. Oh, it was his skull. It was his skull. I'd I'd be a bit annoyed too.
2: Now, another interesting point um, in this interview that you can find on YouTube with Ed and Lorraine Warren that they pointed out, which is quite interesting, is that the house itself sits on 40.666 <gasps> latitude. Don't, don't. of course it's the mark of the devil. Yep. Now, Ed also in his interview showed a picture of George Lutz saying, now look at this guy. He is an ex-Marine and a black belt nothing is going, a black belt in karate, by the (laughs) way, not just a black belt. Not a nice leather one. (laughs) (laughs) And he says nothing is going to scare this bloke. Look at the size of him. So he kind of, you know, reaffirms that something really terrible must have happened to scare this family away. He also adds that George Lutz was an atheist, but after this incident, he became a devout Catholic attending church every week. Uh, Lorraine also mentions in the interview, which is very interesting to note, that all the men that had gone into the house from the time of the hauntings all died from heart-related problems except for her husband, Ed. So this whole haunting and the whole evil that remained in the house actually affected everyone that walked into it.
1: Wasn't there one of the uh, crew, I think one of the camera people that were in there, um, actually had to be taken away during that investigation because he had some sort of incident with his heart and was feeling unwell and he Mm. got carted off to hospital? Yes, that is true. And he was, you know, a middle-aged man, a bit overweight and unfit, probably smoked. But, I mean, that's the devil did it, I'm
2: sure. Now just a few extra points, and this is again from Ed and Lorraine's recorded interview, and Ed talks about the night the Lutz family saw a pair of red eyes looking in through the window. Mm -hmm. So this is... Jodie the pig. Mm -hmm. So they went outside and Ed says that there was light snow falling and that the Lutzes found hoof prints in the snow. Mm -hmm. To end on, I'm going to talk about the polygraph test. Oh, yes. Now Mr. and Mrs. Lutz took that polygraph test on June the 19th, 1979, and they each had different examiners that reviewed the book about the experiences and both of the Lutzes talked about their own personal experiences. And as far as the polygraph test goes, they say that they passed with flying colours. So and there you go. And that
1: basically means that they believed it happened. Yes, it would be interesting to see what those questions were. This is this rabbit hole that keeps going further and further and we we end up having to draw the line. I think there's another whole episode we could do as a follow-up on this because it's
2: massive. Mm. Uh, I just want to go back to Hans Holzer for mm-hmm. a moment. He is a man well-versed in this whole field and, you know, I have a lot of respect for Hans Holzer and anything that he says. So he, he went in with this transmedium. And it was a trans medium who actually connected with this Indian story, the, the Native American Indian. And the belief from that point came that this is what possessed Ron DeFeo. Holzer also took photographs of bullet holes from the 1974 murders. You mean that the bullet holes were still in the walls two years later? He found mysterious halos around them, which mm. was really weird. So I don't know. That's,
1: that's a new one. I haven't heard that before. Well mm. done.
2: Now, going back to these bullet holes and the gunshots that were never heard. Now, mm-hmm. you talked about this to begin with. And Holzer says this. He says that there is no sound because a haunted atmosphere is a magnetic atmosphere and anything that is magnetic will become automatically affected. Ah, so that goes back to what I said at the very beginning about mm. the theories on hauntings. hmm So it's his theory. hmm And this is where we go back to the work we do with EMF, electromagnetic yeah. fields, and that this is where some of the research into paranormal investigating is now doing a big loop and coming back. hmm So we've all, all got to whip out the K2 metres again. All got to whip out the K2 metres <laughs> again. <laughs> <laughs> Most interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. So in going back, you actually start to go forward. That's crazy. Mm. Now I'm going to end my little bit on saying that the def- the Lutzes moved out. Mm-hmm. They claim that whatever it was in the house actually followed them. Ah. So the people that moved in after that never reported that there was anything happening in the house at all mm, after they moved in. Yep. Because they took it with them. They took it with them.
1: Well, I'm going to head right back to Ronnie, okay? Ronnie mm-hmm. DeFeo Jr. So he was well-known in Amityville. He wasn't liked. He was violent and gambled, drug user. Um, and as you said, they, um, the neighbours were aware of the constant yelling and the fighting and that as soon as it was announced in Amityville that that family had been murdered, they knew it was Ronnie. They had no doubt whatsoever and as I said, you know, they'd witnessed um, Ronnie's friends had witnessed the violence from the father as well, so it has to rub off on on the son, I mean that he's being raised in that violent uh, house. Now, this is a little bit of an interesting one. Apparently, because as I said, the townsfolk of Amateurville, they like to gossip. There was a bit of an inappropriate relationship between Dawn, the sister and Ronnie. Mm. So at one stage they were saying that Dawn may have killed some of the, the family and yes. that Ronnie had shot Dawn. Yes. And if I remember from the reports I had read, they actually found some uh, gunpowder residue on Dawn's uh, hands or clothing or something. I know there was gunpowder residue on her. But you know how we go back to the whole um uh, the dark figure female that he saw with black hands. Yes. All right. Okay. So. Uh,
2: um, they're not saying that that was Dawn.
1: Yes. Oh. <gasps> they actually said, well, first off, let's go back to here.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. On the night
1: of the murders, Ronnie had taken some drugs. He was watching a war movie and he had passed out. Mm-hmm. And that's when he heard. Voices talking in the background saying, we've got to kill Ronnie. We've got to kill Ronnie. And that's when this figure has come in and presented him. Earlier on in the evening, there was a witness who saw someone outside and they say it was Dawn. She was dressed in like a a black hoodie with a hood up and she was walking around with a rifle. Well, yeah. How's that for interesting? Now, uh, how much do we trust all these reports? There is—it's like Chinese whispers, thousands. isn't it? It is—that yeah. it is not it its its very much like Chinese whispers. But I also have a theory how the whole demon aspect came about. Yeah. So when Ronnie was on trial, Ronnie Junior, uh, there was a priest who was watching. Now this is quoted from him watching his performance. He called it a performance when Ronnie was on the stand. Right, yes. Uh, and said that he looked like he was possessed by a demon. So here is the seed for the possible demonic possession mm-hmm. which William Weber, his attorney, was going to jump at to use as a defence for the, um, for the yes, retrial. Yes, yes. So, of course, priest, there we go, demonic possession, all that sort of thing. So I, I just thought that was a quite an interesting aspect of that as well. But then I mentioned to you before about Laura Dido, how I quite liked her interviews. and Laura she, Dedeo. Dedeo, Dedeo. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put an L in there. Right, Laura Dedeo, La, D, Dedeo. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'll say it with a tongue, Dedeo. <laughs> um, she actually came from a family that embraced the whole idea of paranormal. Oh, really? Her mother was right into it and they even had Hans Holtz's book. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. See the connection happening yes. here? And she was only 19. She was 19. Oh so, wow. She this was... story lands in her lap yep. and she goes, I'm going for it. Nobody could
1: find the Lutzes as soon as that story broke. Everyone was trying to find them. She found George and apparently he was at the family business. Mm-hmm. So she's headed to George's work, found him, and then sat down and spoke to both of them for four hours. She got the scoop. Now, during that time, she said they were very sincere. They were quite frightened by their experience in the house. So at that stage, that's where she suggested they bring a paranormal investigator in, and she wanted to bring in Hans Holzer, but as I said, unavailable. Uh, So eventually they made contact with the Warrens, who were unknown at the time. And I can't help but wonder how would have this case panned out if Hans Holzer went
2: in first? Mm, Because they did, she also did get in contact with people who were part of the local
1: paranormal. Yes. So she's made contact uh, with who she knew. And, and, and reached out to the people who were supposedly in the know. There's even a story uh, of George contacting someone called Dr. Kaplan to come and investigate. Now, I saw this in a uh, reply. To a story on the, the Amateurville horror. And this man's um they were bagging out this Dr. Kaplan. He was supposed to be a vampirologist, and they were talking about the vampirologists coming into the house and and these white witches who were going to conduct things to find out what happened in the house. And George Candid. Now, the little bit of information that goes with this, right. People were saying, oh, well, he's not a real doctor. Well, he actually was. He actually had a PhD in sociology from the Pacific College and he was the president of the Parapsychological Society of Long Island. Uh But he said to George, I'm happy to come and investigate, but if there's any shenanigans going on, I will be honest and I will tell everyone. Yep. George cancelled them coming in. Right. And then all of a sudden we've got these stories about the vampirologist and the white witches coming in and, uh, of course, that sounds silly when you look at it that way. Yes, yes. But there was also talk of that this Dr. Kaplan was um, trying to make a name for himself as well. So they were trying to say it was like an ego thing. Right. Where the truth lies there,
2: I don't know, but it's an interesting little bit of a conspiracy. And wouldn't you get to a point where if this story breaks, if you were in that township, you'd be going, why didn't they take me to do this? Mm. So maybe there was a bit of professional jealousy there as well. Quite possibly. And Kaplan actually did eventually write
1: a book called The Amityville Conspiracy. And was he died one week before it was released of of a heart attack? You got it. Oh, damn. And he never, ever entered the Amityville house. Oh. Yeah, little twists and turns, huh? Mm. Now, the whole connection with William Weber, which was uh, Ronnie DeFeo Jr.'s solicitor and the Lutz family, it was that George and the Lutz family uh, contacted Weber to find out whether there was any paranormal activity when the DeFeo family was in the house. And um, they were were just trying to get some sense of what had happened. Why has this happened to them? And Weber, of course, latched on to this. He was going for an appeal for Ronnie. All of a sudden he's got these. People who are saying there's horrible things happening in the house, his client is trying to claim the whole demonic thing. Mm -hmm. So now he's got people who can back it up. Yes. So there's a bit of a stake happening there, but he needs to make it sound more dramatic, doesn't he?
2: He does. Now, this
1: is just me putting all these little ideas together, right? But this is not fact. This is just my opinion for anyone who wants to sue me. Um, So he now becomes a stakeholder in the story. So this Weber character started to represent the Lutz family. So when they weren't coming forward to speak to the uh, media, it was because they they didn't want all this attention at first. Mm-hmm. So he became the spokesperson. And it was that's when they got together and started to exaggerate the story and uh, this is when this Laura Dedeo, Did I get right? Yeah, came on the scene. And she she spoke to George, and George said, Look, you need to listen to this recording. They had the recording of the conversation and said to her, You may not want to speak to us after you listen to this. So he put it out there in the open to her straight away that they were thinking of monetizing this and concocting a grander story for. a a money-making scheme. Mm -hmm. So she said, no, of course, I still want to hear your story. I think it's really important that we we hear it all. Now, at this point, was this a stroke of brilliances by the Lutz family to out the tapes, to make them publicly known so that Weber, who now has backed off and saying to people, oh, they're lying, they're lying, because they've cut him out. Mm -hmm. Is this a stroke of brilliance? So when people look at it, go, he, they go, oh, but there's these tapes saying you were going to fake things. And he's now gone, oh, but I told everyone about these tapes. I told everyone. So it's not a hidden thing. I've put it out there. Don't know. So everyone's starting to cover their backs just oh, in case. Oh, yes, mm. yes. So at this stage now the the Lutzes have decided that they don't want to go down the path that this Weber character is wanting to to go down and they've cut him out of everything. So he packs the poos, as you would, because he can probably see the dollar signs that were going to roll in from this with book deals and everything. And this Jay Anson becomes involved. Now, Jay Anson is has written the book, and as you said, he had all the hours and hours of tapes that he has based this book on. Now, in an interview he did with the parapsychologist that I um I saw, Jay Anson very openly said that he is going to write a bestseller, a bestseller horror book. And he will make so much money out of it because it will be the most gruesomest thriller you could possibly ever read. And not worry about the the facts, because he was bragging to this parapsychologist that they could write their boring little books about reality, but he was going to write a bestseller and he quoted something along the lines of, and I'm going to retire to the Bahamas with my truckloads of cashmere sweaters. And interestingly enough, he did make the millions, but he too died. Of a heart attack? I don't know. Maybe we need to look that one up. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that would be very interesting. Um, yeah, so he has even said that he's going to spice it up to make
2: it more interesting. So you can see how all of this is evolving. Yeah. And, you know, from the little seed of the original story, it has just exploded because everyone now sees how big this pie could be and they're just putting lots of cream on top.
1: <laughs> yeah. And now, did you realise the DeFeos were really devout, strict Catholics? And apparently when the uh, Ronnie Jr. started to have issues, the father commissioned all these beautiful religious statues that were put up all around the house and they even had a shrine to the Virgin Mary out the back with a beautiful statue in there. And when the
2: Lutz family moved in, they took them all out. Yeah, if you if you see a photo of that, it looks really really creepy. Uh, I believe there was a statement that uh, Ron DeFeo Sr. made about those statues when he was asked why they were there, and he said it's to try and keep the demon at bay, Ooh. and the demon that he's talking about is his son. Yeah,
1: but that would be the demons within his head, not necessarily yeah. a physical demon. Yeah, true. But apparently there was also some sort of paranormal activity within the DeFeo house when, and they were having masses said and there were candles being blown out, but there is no proof anywhere of all of this sort of thing. So that's all hearsay. Now, this gorgeous Dedeo lady was present for Lorraine Warren's trance when they did the, uh, what was it, the psychic pyjama psychic party? <laughs> yes. Now, Lorraine said at the time that there were no DeFeo children present. There were no DeFeo family spirits left in the house, just a demon. Is this at the séance? This was the the uh, when Lorraine walked through the house and was doing. This is what she said. This is what DeFeo reported. Right. Uh, um, now, the Laura dedeo said herself she felt nothing. She didn't have any experiences herself. Uh, it was just Lorraine telling her story. Mm-hmm. And Lorraine said that the demon was attracted to the violence within the house. And the thing that fascinates me is that the only evidence that they've got from that whole investigation was a picture of what is supposedly one of the DeFeo children.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But she says... There's no DeFeo children left in the house. Mm -hmm. And, look, my my biggest issue with the Warrens, and, look, I don't mean to be um, disrespectful to them, but they were new on the scene and they would have been playing second fiddle to Hans Holzer for a long time, and they have huge bias. They're very religiously based Mm
2: -hmm. for their investigations Mm -hmm. It's always a demon. Well, even when I was watching that interview with Ed and Lorraine, Ed jumped many times from the topic itself to the whole subject of, of demons and mm. how this needs to be fought at every corner, every possible opportunity. The demonic side needs to be put down uh, and people need to be rescued. Yeah. Now, I found that quite odd. It, it was an obvious way of showing how they approach all of the investigations that mm. they do. And it is through the filter of religious bias. Yeah. yeah.
1: And that's something that we're different with. We try to go through, go in without looking through religion's eyes, but as um, environmental conditions that may be affecting the house. And, and look, I've actually found quite a few glaring uh, inconsistencies in the, the whole stories of, of all of this. So The priest changed his story quite often. Mm -hmm. Apparently there weren't swarms of flies. There was a couple of flies Mm -hmm. and it happened on and off. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something that happened all the time. He originally had an affidavit that his only contact with the Lutzes were by phone call, Mm -hmm. but other people said he did visit the house. And then an interview on the TV he is talking about being slapped in the face, and so yes. there's all these inconsistencies yes, True the story. So then, the Lutz's sister came to visit, and she was a nun. Now, she had to get out of the house because she felt sick, and on the way home, she vomited. Was it some sort of influence of the house, or did she just have a, a bad, bad curry, bad prawn? <laughs> <broad? laughs> Apparently, as soon as she vomited, she felt better. And normally, if it is something like that, you do feel better as soon as you purge. Yes. All right, um, another one that we've got for you, Jody the pig. The neighbours had a beautiful fluffy cat that was well known for climbing up onto people's windowsills and peering through at them. So it's quite possible that those eyes that they were looking at through the windows could mm-hmm. have been this cat. Mm-hmm. Now, without us being there and witnessing it, we can't say for sure. I'm just giving you possible alternative as what might have happened. Now, the the cloven hoof prints in the snow. Yep. The day that supposedly happened, according to the meteor- meteorological reports, yes. oh, I've
2: got that word out, uh, there was no snow. But Ed insists in his interview that it is possible for the township of Amityville to to have snow at one area of it and to be devoid of snow in the other. And he did say there was a light dusting of snow.
1: And that covers his tracks nicely for his evidence, doesn't it? It does. Do we have any photos of these hoof prints?
2: I haven't found any. Mm. No, that's not to say that there may not be some, but I didn't see any.
1: And then we've already talked about the gelatinous green substance oozing from the wall, which Mm -hmm. was in actual fact a couple of Clear drops that were found on the floor occasionally. Now they, they had a dog, and I don't know if you've had your dogs deposit drooling type substances oh, on the yes, floor occasionally. Yes,
2: yes, yes, many times. Yes,
1: yeah, I've got cats, I get hairballs.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm,
1: nice. Uh what else have we got? Oh yes, is the stories of the police being called in several times and trying to deal with the problems going on there. Mm-hmm. There are no reports mm-hmm. at all in the police logs that they've ever visited their house. Now, the son had the fingers jammed in the window when it suddenly slammed on them. There is a, uh, some people found out that there was a floorboard that would trigger windows to fly up and down. Um, so that wasn't necessarily something demonic, but it was the old lead weights on a piece of string and I've got those here in the house and yeah if you hit them in the wrong spot they can fly up and also come down Uh, and there is no report of the son being taken to the hospital even though his fingers were flattened but in the interview I heard this morning George said that his fingers were completely flat but by the time they got him into the car to take him to the hospital his fingers had returned to normal. It's a miracle. It is. The red room was not hidden At all the previous owners knew about it and it was only four by five feet. It was tiny. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Lutzer said it was behind a bookcase. Door slamming, no one else hearing it, even the dog still sound asleep when he gets up to check. That can happen in your sleep. You may be dreaming that's happened. Yes, Was it sleep paralysis? Was it dreaming? Same with the marching band. Yes. Or uh, if you're near a waterfront property, as you know, sound travels. Mm -hmm. There's so much more that we could go into but it, it just keeps going down this hole and he's having this, George is having all this broken sleep, which makes you irritable and cranky.
2: Um, and sleep not, paralysis yeah, yeah, does happen a lot more often if you are sleep deprived. Mm. So just, just to summarize it, I
1: looked at it, who would benefit from there being a fantastic haunting? Now for me, there's William Webber, there's lawyer who wanted a case to represent his client for the appeal and yep. to make some money. Yep. Uh, there's Dr. Kaplan who was trying to make a name for himself at the time and ended up writing a book. There's Jay Anson who openly said he was going to write a bestseller uh, and damn the truth. Um, then we've got Ronnie DeFeo who is also looking for an excuse for an appeal. Mm-hmm. Then we have the Warrens, who are just starting out and they're trying to make a name for themselves. So their story may have to be bigger and better than what it actually was. And then there's the the Lutz family themselves. Now, I honestly, in my gut, believe they did have some sort of experience in the house. They weren't there very long. Twenty eight days is not a long period of time, and to get to know the sounds of your house. The, the It's almost like your house breathing. And they're playing in the back of their minds all the time that these horrific murders happened in this house. Mm. And you know from our private cases that we deal with all the time, once people get the idea in their head there's something there, they will fixate on it and every sound they hear
2: becomes paranormal. I'm also going to add to that mix the effect that it had on the children and them going into this community and going into the schools and people talking about that. Certainly children are going to go up to those children and go, what's it like living in that house with all of the horrors that mm-hmm. went inside? Yeah. And it would be scaring the be- Jesus out of those kids. Yep. I wonder whether one of the reasons they left after twenty eight days is that they said, oh, "We just can't take this anymore. This yeah. is ridiculous. We need we need a break from all of this." And
1: like even little Missy talking about um, how she was singing, and they'd stop when they came into the room and left again, and she was talking to herself. Children at the age, developing their speech, and that is something that's a normal thing. But because their senses are heightened and their fear senses are over over the top of everything, they're looking at that as a demonic thing. Yeah. So, look, I do believe that something happened. I believe that it got out of hand and it became, you know, you make a mountain out of a molehill. Yep. Um, and that there was just that much out there that it's very hard to take it all back in. Once yes. you've let it loose and everybody else is jumping on the bandwagon to grab their bit of fame or money or whatever it
2: is, then... Cat's out of the bag, yeah. too late. It's a bit bit hard to stuff that back into a bag and say it didn't happen. And you know, how many movies have now been made from that one story? How have so many people continued to benefit from What happened in that house? And if you think
1: about the period of time that all of this happened. Ah, the satanic panic. Yeah, and that movie, The Exorcist, had come out just before all of this went down. Yes. So people were starting to become aware of the paranormal and demons. And once again, The Exorcist, which we'll probably cover in another episode, is a mountain out of a molehill. Mm Mm-hmm. So, dear people, with all of that information, we're going to let you, as they say, unpack it and see what conclusions you come up with. On our next episode, we're going to be looking at the Black Monk of Pontefract, so I hope you can join us then. And we've got some personal things to say about that because we were there. We were there.
2: We were there.
1: So, ladies and gentlemen, We'll see you on the dark side.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of True Hauntings. If you like the show, give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. For more on Anne and Renata, follow at Anne and Renata on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Or visit their website, www.annandrenata.com. True Hauntings is a part of the Human Labs Podcast Network.